Welcome to our backyard. This is the Backyard Philosophy Podcast. We are two friends having a discussion after everyone else has passed out or gone to bed. Grab a drink and listen as we discuss everything from automation, space exploration, and why the meaning of life is 42. We're going to talk about the people who made American forests, how Americans view the forests and the people who shape those ideas. We're going to focus just on American forestry because of the time and the place. It's completely different from the way Europeans viewed their own forest. And it's what I know more about. But before we get into all that, Mike, how are you doing? What are you drinking? I'm doing fantastic. And I'm drinking some legacy whiskey. How about you, my friend? How are you doing? What are you drinking? Oh, I'm drinking some Coors Light because the mountains are blue. I'm glad you have a stiff drink to listen to me talk about trees for an hour or so. <laughs> nah, it'll be fine. Well, we're going to start off with around 1728, John Bartram would become a, essentially a plant salesman, a nursery owner. He's self-educated and taught himself Latin. He bought land near Philadelphia and began a small garden, just eight acres. He's interested in plants and traveled into unsettled territory looking for new plants and different trees to grow. He traveled by horse, but occasionally would have to dismount and get into some of the rockier, steeper terrain. And all the plants he brought in, he'd have to, all the plants he brought out, he'd have to actually carry out with the dirt in his bag. So he could only take a few trips here and there. He braved the elements, but he also braved the Native Americans that were there. You know, they... This wasn't uh, always a peaceful encounter, and some Americans would get in tangles and not come back. But he pushed through all of that, pushed through inclement weather, the financial burden of traveling out there, possible death and dismemberment, mountain Mountain lions, lions. of course, (laughs) bears, but for plants. And he took all these plants back to his nursery, and he'd sell them to wealthy Americans. Well, there really wasn't that many wealthy Americans to sell to. It was a very small market, definitely not enough to sustain a business. But there's a huge population of wealthy people in England. So he began writing to let- letters to people in England to try and get them to buy his plants. He would have sketches, descriptions of them. Eventually, in 1730, Peter Collinson, who was a merchant in the plant trade, he found one of Bartram's letters, and he was actually looking for someone to sell him plants so he could become a distributor. He was looking for a botanist in the United States. Now, at this time, America didn't have botanists. This wasn't a land of well-educated people. This was a land of rough-and-tumble frontiersmen. They didn't have the background knowledge. Most didn't understand Latin. They didn't have the tools and education that was needed to harvest, store, plant, collect and ship all that seed plants over to Europe. Upon finding Bartram, Collinson knew that he could possibly start a business relationship with this man. And so they exchanged letters and he asked for samples. So Bartram had to get the letters and then send the samples and then wait to hear back from him. So that probably took like a year. I think you're being generous with a year. (laughs) I know. I've so much. I, I should have looked that up, how long it takes to get isn't it like three months in good weather you can get from Europe to North America? 
I was going to say four months, but yeah, it's probably more right with three, three months. But. Three and a half. Settled, settled the difference. But eventually Collinson got the plants, and he said he wanted to go into business together. He sent him a bunch of tools, books, and sent him some money. But he also sent his correspondence on to scientists in Europe. Um, so these were people, these English scientists, because this is where all the all the science was going on, right? For plants, Germany was really the number one researcher in this area. They had a lot of good scientists, but he passed, Collinson passed Bartram's address, I guess, his correspondence onto a lot of different scientists, the most notable, notable being Charles Linnaeus. If, uh, if you're not familiar with Charles Linnaeus, he was responsible for establishing the taxonomic system we use today to classify every organism from bacteria to plants, humans, all of that. It's, it's kind of a big deal. I did not know that. Yeah, I think it was probably like the fifth time we've mentioned him in a podcast. He keeps working his way back in. So the plant trade was a good business for Collinson because at this time, gardening was actually in style. This was like a fad that was going around in Europe. And as with all things... The unique ones is, are, are, is what gets noticed, right? So the diversity of species coming in from North America was in high demand. You know, this is like, we're a still a colony at this time, right? So this is, you know, these plants, it's a European pride. It's settled land, the strange new area that the Europe, that England settled, and now you can own a plant from it. So it's kind of a, a hot commodity. As Tending to the garden. I was going to make a bad british accent joke and you stopped me from doing it so thank you nick i guess you're welcome so as bartram's wealth and knowledge grew he wanted to create a botany society he wanted to talk about this stuff with people in the united states he didn't want to talk correspond over the course of months with all these scientists over in england uh collinson he, he talked about this in his notes to collinson bartram did and collinson told him that well with the colony being in its infancy, it didn't have the resources or knowledge to support such a society. So Bartram went to our favorite scientist, Mike, Benjamin Franklin. Woo! Our boy Ben, back at it again. On March 17th, 1742, Franklin published a paper calling for the subscription of Americans to support Bartram and others like him to gather knowledge of what all these new plants could be good for. Out of curiosity, Nick, was this part of the Juno Club, or was this before or after that? It, but does the Juno Club, is that the American Philosophical Society? Yes. Yes. This is, uh, we'll be there in like two sentences. Cool. <laughs> um, so this coordinated effort by Franklin was actually one of the first efforts to promote science in the colonies. And then on May 14th, 1743 a year a little bit a year after franklin proposed an american scientific society called the american philosophical society the american philosophical society had nine founding members franklin obviously was the head and then the head botanist was bartram so out of nine he was one of the nine and bartram when the war, war broke out decided to stay loyal to the land that took him from a humble farmer to a botanist, scientist, elevated member of society, and furthermore, acquaintance of Benjamin Franklin. Even though he was considered the king's botanist, he chose to side with the United States. Smart man. Yeah, smart man. He knew he knew what was up. Um, so Carl Linnaeus, like I said, 
pretty famous scientist. He described Bartram as the greatest natural botanist in the entire world. That's some heavy claim. <laughs> yeah. Bartram, yeah, especially from a scientist like Linnaeus. So what Bartram did is he took, he made people realize that you could have, I mean, Franklin helped as well, but you could have scientific knowledge from the United States or North America, the colonies, that there was a desire there to interact with nature. And the fact that gardening was big, he was able to make money to promote his business as well as explore, find new plants. With the money he made, he was able to travel down to Florida all over in search of plants. So he kind of was the precursor for everything to follow. He he set the stage, he put the knowledge out there, and he's one of America's first scientists, first botanists. Something that I thought was interesting is that he was one of the first people to figure out how to cultivate the Venus flytrap. Not just like find it and take it, but actually reproduce it. I have no idea how that reproductive cycle works. So that that's surprising to me. It's a carnivorous plant. I would never imagine having a different breeding cycle, but it makes sense that it would. Unfortunately, Bartram wasn't going to live forever, and he ended up dying in 1777. But that didn't mean that America didn't need botanist. His cousin, Humphrey Marshall Bartram, stepped up to fill his shoes. Humphrey published The American Grove, which is essentially a catalog of American plants, which is also the first botany text published by an American. The text was dedicated to the American Philosophical Society, the group that Benjamin Franklin started, that Bartram was a part of, the book did not do very well in the United States, but it was very popular in Europe, which continued to advance American botany. Next, just like everything, occasionally you need a little help from the French. <laughs> a French botanist, André Michaud, arrived with instructions to study production and collect seeds for France. France wanted faster-growing conifers to replace the slow-growing hardwoods, which they have native to France. It takes a long time for those plants to grow. They were dying. They wanted to be able to put trees in the ground and then have trees pretty soon after. In 1785, he reached New York and was introduced to Franklin, George Washington, and Humphrey Marshall, cousin of John Bartram. He mirrored Bartram's strategy of roaming and collecting from all over the countryside. He also opened up his own nursery and sent specimens to France. Working for the French government, he didn't need to depend on buyers, so he didn't have to dedicate a bunch of time to cultivating all these plants. He was just sending them to the French government. So he had one client, and that's all he had to take care of. So he was free to explore a lot more and do a lot more things. Grab and go. Unfortunately, the French Revolution kind of threw a wrench in that. No. After the French... Well, when the French Revolution started government wasn't willing to give him money to explore the American countryside and occasionally send back plants. But he still wanted to explore. And around the same time, Jefferson, who was Secretary of State as well as a member of the American Philosophical Society, wanted to finance an excursion to scout the American West. Jefferson was also kind of a botanist. And here's a quote from Jefferson, the greatest service which can be rendered to any country is to add a useful plant to its culture. In 1792, Jefferson and the American Philosophical Society were looking for men to lead a Western trip. Jefferson reached out to Humphrey, but he declined. Meriwether Lewis applied for that spot, 
but was declined. Michaud asked for funding from the American Philosophical Society to journey west primarily to look for new trees for France. He was just the man they were looking for. He was approved for the trip by members of the Constitutional Convention. Washington, Jefferson, Hamilton, and many others signed off on it. Unfortunately, before he left, he crossed paths with Charles Genet, a.k.a. Citizen Genet. I don't know if you remember what that is from history class, Mike, but... The American government did not like that. They thought uh, France was trying to form some kind of resistance in the United States and overthrow their government. So federal approval dropped from the excursion. Federal funding and approval both dropped. Yeah, on the threat of a battalion inside your freshly new country, I imagine that would take precedent over exploring the countryside for new plants and trees. Yep, it- It didn't quench the thirst for westward discovery from Jefferson, but it did put a stop to that particular trip. Michaud went to explore Australia as well as Madagascar, but never the American West. Jefferson, when he became president in the election of 1800, continued his plan for western exploration. He appointed the previously denied Meriwether Lewis, who is now a captain in the United States Army. William Clark was appointed second in command. One of Jefferson's big fears about Lewis is that he was not a botanist. To remedy his fear, Jefferson had Clark spend several months with Benjamin Smith Barton, a botanist who published America's first botanical textbook. On August 31st, 1803, the expedition departed Pittsburgh. Lewis and Clark sent back many botanical samples, growing American knowledge of forest and forestry, as well as expanding the entire world's knowledge of what is what is west of uh, the coast of North America. (laughs) So now we're going to skip forward a bunch, I guess 10 years, to the Transcendentalism movement. Henry David Thoreau was born in 1817. His dad was a pencil maker and occasionally would help out with his dad's business. He actually invented a way to make pencils much more, the process of pencil making much more efficient but then after that, he was done with pencil making. He's quoted as saying, I've already done it. Why would I do it again? Probably making pencils isn't the most fun job either. Probably not. He was predominantly interested in writing and nature. He would spend a lot of time in the solitude of nature. And he read an essay by Ralph Waldo, Ralph Waldo Emerson called Nature. And Wal- oh my gosh, Emerson's book kind of drew people into looking at nature not as something to be conquered but as something to be enjoyed this is the the beginning of a mo- something that today is so obvious that so many people talk about but at the time this was uh, almost a radical idea so i'm going to give some quotes from nature from emerson the world is emblematic uh, parts of speech are metaphors metaphors because the whole of nature is a metaphor of the human mind that's a pretty good one And this is one that uh, more people might know. But if a man be alone, let him look at the stars. The rays that come from those heavenly worlds will separate between him and vulgar things. One might think the atmosphere was made transparent with this design to give man in the heavenly bodies their perpetual presence of the sublime. Seen in the streets of cities how great they are. If the stars should appear one night in a thousand years... How would men believe and adore and preserve for many generations the remembrance of the city of God which had been shown? But every night they come out, these envoys of beauty, and light the universe with their admonishing smile. 
That's quite pretty. Right? I mean, it, and it's crazy too, right? Like, it's true. Like, every time you look at the stars, you're like, man, those are, those are wild. You know, I'm lucky to work away from the cities, the light pollution, so I get to see the stars all the time. And I, it's, I think he's right. If you only saw the, saw the stars once in a thousand years, it'd be like a national or a global holiday. Everyone would be out and watching. But it's almost, we see them all the time, so they're not as beautiful. But then every time you look at them, they're just as beautiful. But this is the beginning of appreciating nature and, you know, kind of being present when out in nature. Nature wasn't always trying to kill us anymore. Now we could... <laughs> We could sit back and enjoy it. Yeah. So the, the the transcendentalism movement, the transcendentalism movement was a call to reunite with nature as opposed to conquering it, as they put it. Now, its followers tended to favor public libraries, vegetarianism, abolition, utopian communities. So there's also sort of a political party, but it's mostly remembered for this idea of reuniting with nature. So Waldo and Emerson met near the end of the 1830s. Emerson had Thoreau a journal for some of his transcendentalism publications. He's trying to get a paper going, but Thoreau did not make enough money to provide for himself, even with Emerson's support. So he performed kind of some odd jobs over the years. In 1845, he decided to live in the woods. He went to Emerson, who directed him to a plot of land that he controlled that was on a pond. Thoreau would go and build his own house there, a very simple house, and he he didn't have curtains because he didn't want anything else that he couldn't have. He had no neighbors, he said. He said, if the sun wakes him up, that's a small price to pay for having less things in my world. He wanted to live as simply as he could. Sounds like you in a couple years, Nick. Yep. He has a, lo a lot more famous quotes that I think you might recognize some of these. I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach and not when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. I haven't heard that one. That's a good one. Okay. I think I have seen a lot of different quotes from me than, than you have. Maybe just different worlds, different worlds. Um, but he explored the topic that all people needed some semblance of nature. Obviously not everyone can live out in the woods at their famous writer's, back pond in the his back 40 but getting out into nature will do people good that is the truth in 1871 emerson relieved california where he met john muir i'm not going to get into john muir quite yet but that's a name most people probably recognized around this time that the transcendentalism movement was going out metropolis continued to expand and forests continued to shrink especially around new york city the rich were able to go into the mountains to retreat. They could afford the price to get out of the city. They could spend time out in cabins. They had all this free time. They weren't working day in and day out. Andrew Jackson Downing was another author, and he wrote a book on landscape gardening. This is one of the first books on landscape gardening that was specifically adapted to North America. He started a magazine, The Horticulturalist, which is about... Uh, you know, growing plants, but this was more not just growing plants for food, but also for decoration. He published an editorial about public parks and gardens. He argued that other European countries had large community gardens and community parks that the public paid for and everyone benefited from. At this time in the United States, we didn't have like parks in every neighborhood, much less 
giant arboretums and all the stuff that we have today that we take for granted. At this time in the United States, people and cities were so desperate for green space, uh, so desperate for green space, they would often go to picnic and drive around, walk around cemeteries. Jesus. I, that is, that is scary that you're so desperate for grass and some fresh air that you go to the cemetery to get it. So Downing argued that we needed a public green space to bring some semblance of nature to the city, but he was unsure of how to pay for it. As this movement grew, eventually in 1851, the candidate for mayor of New York called for a public park, but people argued over where it should be, how big it should be, who was going to pay for it, and it became pretty political because wherever they put that giant park, whoever's house is next to it is going to be worth a hell of a lot more money. Uh, Yeah, the the cream of the crop place you want to go to. Downing argued at the smallest, it should be 500 acres. In New York City, even back then, 500 acres is a lot. So in 1853, they found an area. And this wasn't just, this wasn't a good area. There's a reason it wasn't inhabited. This was seen as poor soils. This is essentially a swamp. It had (laughs) shitty soils. It didn't grow much. There wasn't that many people there. So they were able to get it for pretty cheap. New York bought 700 acres for the price of $5 million. Dang. That's... Seems like a good deal, hun. <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot of land in the middle of the city, so not not too bad. Um, but now they had the land. But what was the park going to look like? So you had a few different options, traditionally. You had your European gardens, You have which is has a traditional, the grid layout. You know, these are the smaller gardens and arboretums you've walked around where, you know, it's probably got a walkway around the side, and then... One going through the middle, another one that runs north-south, another one runs east-west. It's all symmetrical, it's laid out, pretty simple. You also have stuff like the Russians were doing, where you have recreations of monuments like pyramids and Chinese architecture. Like People in New York, to get help get ideas, because they weren't quite sure, they asked for the public's input, which generally isn't the best. It's uh, usually the worst idea you could possibly ever do. Yep, that's how you get uh, Bodie McBoatface. <laughs> so New York established a commission, and that commission would look through all the public uh, submissions. There were some requirements. It would have to have four roads and architectural elements. That's pretty much it. So that meant like a theater, you know, a building, benches, stuff like that. Nothing too crazy that would make it so you couldn't have whatever you're trying to build, but just a loose set of rules. Just an idea, a reference. Unfortunately, Downing didn't get to see the park finished because he died before it was done. Um, But he did get to design a different park. He did design a park around the Smithsonian. He was supposed to do almost the entire mall, but the United States ran out of funding, so he just did the area outside the Smithsonian. An apprentice of Downing's, Calvert Vox entered the competition. Calvert decided to work with Frederick Law Olmsted, who was the new park superintendent. So whatever submission won, Olmsted was going to build it. Olmsted really only got the job from political connections. He had bounced it around from job to job before that. But because he had done a lot of different jobs, he had a semi-decent understanding of agriculture, predominantly growing plants, 
and how drainage works, which is incredibly important if you're building in a swamp. (laughs) Olmstead was able to turn his workforce into a decent crew. His workforce was predominantly government appointees, you know, oh, like my son needs a job, you know, my cousin's uncle needs a job. All these people were appointed politically, his workforce, and because of that, they weren't the most driven, but Olmstead was able to turn them into a decent workforce for it to carry out the work. Calbert Vox wanted to get his design made, chose Olmstead in large part due to his political connections. He was he was going to build this park. He probably had some say in what submission was chosen. He also was skilled with his logistical ability, able to coordinate, like I said, the construction crew, as well as the ordering of trees, all this stuff. So he was appointed for political reasons, but he was able to do the job. So he want, wanted to work with him to help with his submission and kind of get prices and stuff. Olmstead and Vox, their submission was inspired by Downing's use of trees, which isn't a terrible idea to take advice from one of the best-selling books in America at the time because there's something working there. Yeah, at the very least, you could say, hey, I got this idea from this guy. So they wanted to use trees uh, to that worked within the landscape and not molding it to their view. So they didn't want to, like the European style, have you know symmetrical grids with laid-out sidewalks and you know trees on the outside, grass on the inside, very garden-like. They wanted this to have a somewhat natural feel to it. They called this plan for the park the Greensward Plan. One of the first things they were going to do is create a barrier around the edge of the park with trees. And what that was supposed to do is make it so if you were inside the park, you could only see trees. You didn't see any buildings. So you could get the feeling that you had escaped from the city. An island of isolation. I like it. This was an effective strategy until we started building skyscrapers. And we weren't building skyscrapers at this time. One of their main themes was, like you, like I said, they wanted to create a barrier between the busy city life, the modern world, and the park. They wanted this to be almost separate from the city. They didn't want it to work within the city. They wanted this to be something else. They wanted to create an artificial lake. This would be one of the largest, or sorry, the first ecology restoration projects that had been undertaken. So this is like the beginning of landscape restoration, right? This was somewhat loose city ground, semi-developed, now being turned back into somewhat natural. This is one of the first landscape restoration projects that we hear about all the time. This is one of the, the first and definitely the biggest of the first. Our ancestors were probably rolling in the grave like, we got away from the woods to only go back to the woods? Are you kidding me? Oh, I know. It's... We're, this is, America's came and we conquered nature and now we're slowly turning back around and saying, oh, we need that. (laughs) That was the beginning of the transcendentalism movement. And now this, this, the production of this park took around 3000 people. They brought so much soil in that it actually raised the land of the park about four feet. So for 700 acres, raise that four feet. I don't even know how many cubic tons that is, and I don't even know it might, if I could say it. It's not even just by itself. I guarantee you a lot of it was falling into the water, trying to fill it up. It's probably more than four feet. Yeah, it had to be compacted. And this is at a time before dump trucks, right? Like 
we didn't have semi trucks that could just bring in hundreds of pounds of dirt. So the reason that we brought in the soil, because the original soil was, like I said, pretty degraded, swampy, and it couldn't support the trees that Olmstead wanted to put in the park. The new park, Central Park as we call it, was a hit. It's the largest free service provided to a society at that time. So this was in the middle of the Civil War, so it's probably hard to get funding. But someone said, you know what this country needs in the middle of the Civil War? A new steak sauce and a big-ass park. <laughs> After Central Park, Olmstead joined the Union. He served working to improve sanitary conditions. And then in California, he later advocated for the Sequoia Preservation. Later, they uh, Calvert and formed a business designing gardens and bringing public lands, public parks, to people. He'd go around designing gardens and helping people with their own gardens. Next, George Peckins Marsh wrote Man and Nature in 1864. George, another farmer, at the, started out as a, another farmer, just like most of these guys. He also worked in the timber industry, as well as a newspaper editor. He eventually moved into politics. Marsh gave a speech that described the ecology of deforestation, such as erosion and soil degradation. The book was written to turn public opinion from we must conquer nature to maybe we should value these forests for something other than timber. <laughs> this was 180. Yeah. And this was one of the first times that uh, environmental damage had been quantified and brought to the public view, really. I mean, people have been saying it for years, but this is one of the first big, you know, look, here's the evidence that this is bad. And this is what it does to soil, which which in turn what it does to our streams and rivers and then drinking water trying to use um unlike a, so there had always been conservationists right people not everyone wanted to just cut down the trees and do all this stuff but for purely emotional reasons marsh was one of the first to turn science and use that as a reason to protect the environment and he f tried to phrase it in a way that it wasn't protecting the environment it's protecting us protecting our drinking water protecting forests protects our drinking water so this is kind of the beginning of science-backed conservation. So the book was written to turn, like I said, public opinion. He traveled to Europe. Uh, he attended Dartmouth. He spoke several languages. And through all his travels and research, he was able to put together a book to talk about the effects of deforestation. And I include the part that he traveled to Europe because Europe had already seen deforestation. Their, like I said, their forestry is so different from our forestry because... They had already deforested and reforested, and it, by the time we get to the United States, we had not we had yet to deforest. So we are in a sense behind, but also ahead in the fact that, as we'll see throughout this, pretty like we start behind. We don't have botanists, we don't have scientists who do all this stuff, and then not too far in the future, around by the time Teddy Roosevelt takes office, forest United States starts to become it starts. To become a dominant force in the world and there's still contention between the united states and europe even to this day because our forests are so different but we in the united states are blessed with so many wild forests that haven't been cut several hundred times that it's not even comparable to eastern forest even our timber company pr primarily production trees in the united states are like two to three times as big as a lot of the european trees just because their tree, their, their for, they, it's a different kind of forestry. They have to make bigger equipment to work out west. Our trees are bigger, and as such, by American logic, they are better. 
<laughs> it sounds to me, Nick, that for once humanity learned its lesson and we're learning from our past mistakes. Yeah, and that's what Marsh did. He used the deforested Europe to say this this has happened and it will happen. Next, we have either a captain of industry or a robber baron, depending on where you sit. 1852, Frederick Weyerhaeuser came to the United States as a German immigrant with little money. If you're not familiar with the Weyerhaeuser name, this is the creator of the largest company, corporation for forestry in the United States right now. Not too long ago, they bought out the second largest. Weyerhaeuser, from the time he started his own company, has been dealing with trust issues up until today, antitrust laws. We're going to learn how he did it. This is the opposing view almost to some of these other people, but not by much. We're going to see how they're very similar. They just have different ways of getting there. Weyerhaeuser got a job in a sawmill, eventually worked his way up to becoming a lumber salesman. And this part is wild to me. The mill was going out of business, and he had saved up enough money from working there to partner with another German immigrant and buy it. Buy the company that you were working for. That is a bold move, Cotton. Let's see how that one turns out. Turned out pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) At this time, actually, I say at this time, but all the time in mills, advancements in technology come out that lead to more efficiencies. I mean, this was, they were cut, they were able to get uh, different sized bandsaws, right? That cut, the width was less, so the waste is reduced. Now, we're still chasing efficiencies. I mean, pretty much every log is x-rayed and a computer runs through it to figure out the most efficient way to cut it. Warehouser wasn't quite there, uh, but he used technology to become more efficient and make the mill more efficient. Some of these mills were water-powered and were transitioned to steam power because, like I said, it's more efficient. Now, the problem with some of these mills is that the cutting itself was moving. So it was moving from east, from one side of the Great Lakes, to the other side, or moving up to Wisconsin, Minnesota, Upper Peninsula, the UP of Michigan, and all logs were floated downriver, down lake, downstream. Transported by water is a lot cheaper than horse so that was the way to do it. But as the cutting moved further from the mills, there is more chance that your logs were going to be picked up by someone upriver. Logs were cut and would be marked with a brand to differentiate who owned them. But I feel like you just cut that out. <laughs> yeah, it really wasn't enforced. People would steal logs um, or they'd just get lost too. I mean, some would sink. Or, you know, We're still finding logs today from when these trees were cut. Each time they'd, the logs would change hands, each person would take a cut. So you got, you know, the landowner, where the logs came from. Then you got the cutters. Then you guys who hauled the trees to the water. Then you got the guys who, uh, you know, with the poles, forget the name of them, who worked the log jams. And then you got the boom operators. So it is what it sounds, kind of like a crane, a boom that sweeps out across the river, pulls in the logs. So you got a lot of different people to pay. And so even if everything goes according to plan, you're still losing a lot of money. If no one steals it, there's still a lot of corruption that's going on as well. So the further you are away from your revenue source, you really have to maximize your efficiencies or find a way to make more money. So Weyerhaeuser is trying to figure out how to solve this problem. So he went up the Chippewa Valley to see the white pine that he wanted to buy. 
He saw the incredible value of the untouched land with the large trees with rivers and lakes everywhere that would help move the logs. He went directly to the supplier and purchased logs, cutting out a few middlemen. He started making more money that way. His next move was to make sure that his trees actually arrived at not just any mill, at his mill. Like I said, all the cut logs would float downriver. Different mills would catch them up, pick out the logs they wanted. You know, if they were honest, they'd push their competition's log downstream. Caveat there is if they were honest. <laughs> someone big, essentially big, big asterisk there. Yeah, someone just gave you free money. So sometimes, even if they didn't get taken, these honest log buyers or these honest mills that would push them out, it would take months for them to get through all the mills. Because say one mill picks up your log, keeps it for a month or so. By the t- time they get to sorting it, sends it downriver, someone else picks it up. So you don't have a cutting or from your unit or from your ground to your mill. You you can't track that like you can nowadays. You know, nowadays from a unit to the mill takes anywhere from like 45 minutes to three hours. And if you have to call the guy, but some of them are on GPS, so you know exactly where those logs are if you really wanted to figure it out. So having your product tied up for months is kind of an eternity in the mill business. Even today, when we shut down for fires and logs don't have her mills don't have logs for weeks. You start cutting shifts. People start losing money. You're not making money. It, you need to be running all the time. So this was putting out a lot of downstream competition. So, But all the downstream competition had a common problem. Weyerhaeuser is trying to tackle that. He bought a boom upstream that would sort their logs and then you know, keep all the downriver logs. And he allowed the people who were downriver to kind of buy into this company. This is a way to kind of keep everyone honest, you know, because they had the power to take other logs kind of is kind of put them on the map there, made them a neighbor, like an adjacent neighbor and not a far away person. But still, you know, sketchy things were happening. But now at least they could sort their logs, make sure that their logs were going where they need to go. They called this loose corporation of business of uh, mill owners, the Mississippi River Logging Company, and it represented the majority of mills from the beginning of the Mississippi River down through St. Louis. Since Weyerhaeuser organized it, he was put in charge. Even though this new company was the largest logging industry company in the United States, they still had a lot of their logs tied up in upriver mills. The Mississippi River Logging Company decided to flood the rivers with logs. They wanted to cut so much these other companies couldn't afford to pick their logs up. So many logs were cut that the upriver mills couldn't hold the logs. Logs were flowing downriver. Everyone was getting their logs. Everyone was making money. There's logs everywhere. Uh, the landowners, who could be public or private, like I said, you know, you occasionally had some government land, not like we know today, but rail, like railroad land, whatever, um, stuff like that, and private landowners were still getting a cut. How do you get rid of that? You start buying land. The Mississippi River Logging Company started buying land, eventually started owning their first, in the first year, they owned 300,000 acres by the end of the 1870s. That is a lot of land. People said this is a monopoly. In 1880, so many logs were flowing downriver that boats couldn't travel on the rivers, and they filed a lawsuit against the Weyerhaeuser Mississippi River Logging Company boom. And, Mike, you'll like this one. 
The tides are about to turn for the upriver log buyers. Hey, Nick's doing a pun. I'm growing on him. A flood pushed most of the logs downriver from the upriver buyers, from the upriver mills, into the Mississippi River Logging Company boom. So all those thieves who were taking these guys' lumber, the Mississippi River Logging Company now controlled all of their logs. So those guys were suddenly at the mercy of these southern mill owners that they had been stealing from for years. Karma's a bitch. Many of those southern mill owners wanted to screw over those upriver mills, but Weyerhaeuser struck a deal that would even everything out so that the upriver mills would get some of their logs back and the ones blown downriver, the Mississippi River Logging Company would get and they'd kind of make a trade, even it out. So it would have been pretty easy to screw over those guys for that one chance. But now they created another partnership. He is, in a sense, secured the future of all those downriver logs because those guys knew they could be one flood away from losing all their money and they'd have to be in the good graces of the people downriver. They formed another company, the Chippewa Logging Company. This was the a lot of the Mississippi River Logging Company along with the new upriver mills. Once the lake states began to lose their lumber, Weyerhaeuser and others looked to areas to get lumber from. They went over to Minnesota. Weyerhaeuser then met uh, Jay Hill from Northern Pacific Railroad. He then purchased unused railroad land at $6 an acre for 900,000 acres in the state of Washington. Everyone's just buying up large lots of land. Yep. Well, land was cheap back then, 6 bucks an acre. On this large purchase, Weyerhaeuser said, This is not for us or for our children, but for our grandchildren. So Weyerhaeuser saw the long-term investment here, which is what timber is. It's a long-term investment. So even though he is this robber baron, they were cutting everything, he knew that this was going to come back and that this ground was going to be productive. You just had to wait it out. This is kind of the beginning of, you know, this is the first big timber company, and it still is the biggest timber company in the United States. This is the beginning of more modern industrial forestry, not the cut-and-run forestry, cut-and-run logging that we had seen in the past. This is the semblance of land management. Next, 1832, Mike, a familiar name to us, J. Sterling Morton. Morton moved to Nebraska as it was being settled. Another uh, humble farmer. Eventually, during Morton's time in Nebraska, he was secretary of Nebraska and then governor as well. On his own personal property, he planted a large variety of trees. Morton was very passionate about one issue and gave speeches about planting trees in Nebraska. The State Horticultural Society asked him to write a speech about planting trees. That same day he presented a speech, he argued for the creation of Arbor Day. People argued about the name. There was Arbor Day and then uh, Sylvan Day. Sylvan from the Latin for trees. But that impl- or forest, but that implied more of a forest tree, not just any tree. And Morton was a fan of fruit trees. But most agreed, if you didn't like this name or that name, that it was a good idea to highlight the importance of planting trees. And eventually, as we know today, they settled on Arbor Day because it was more inclusive to fruit trees. And if there's one thing I know about Nebraska, it is they are worried about inclusivity. <laughs> Well, you can only judge a tree by the, fr- the fruit it bears, so. Nothing? No joke? Fr- not nothing? Oh, sorry. 
Over a million trees were planted on April 10th. Many other states also adopted an Arbor Day celebration, and soon it spread international. Grover Cleveland promoted Morton to Secretary of Agriculture. Morton established the modern Arbor Day, and his quote on Arbor Day is, Arbor Day is not like other holidays. Each of those reposes on the past, while Arbor Day proposes for the future. He also said, the cultivation of trees is the cultivation of the good, the beautiful, and the ennobling in man. And each generation of humankind takes the earth as trustees. We ought to bequeath to posterity as many forests and orchards as we have exhausted and consumed. Mike, the name Morton is familiar to us. Most people probably know it from the Morton Arboretum in Illinois, which was paid for by his son, by the son of J. Storling Morton, who went on to found the Morton Salt Company and then created the park to honor his father. Huh. Talk about a small world. And that's all I had for part one. Thanks for listening to the Backyard Philosophy Podcast. We rarely finish a podcast without missing a point we wanted to bring up, so let us know what we forgot. And if you have a topic you want us to talk about, let us know at Backyard Philosophy on Instagram and Backyard Philosophy Podcast on Facebook.